Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast. I'm Rick. I'm Julia. And today we are watching 1995's Braveheart. Directed by Mel Gibson, written by Randall Wallace, and and produced by Paramount. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a while, but I, I, I found the production company. It just didn't pop to me. Anyway, doesn't matter. So, Braveheart, principal actors. It stars, of course, Mel Gibson, Sophie Marceau, Patrick McGowan, and many more. So, Braveheart, second week in a row that we are not watching an Australian movie, for sure. I, I will concede that notion. But we are watching this movie today specifically because Mel Gibson is in it. This is a story of Mel Gibson, who has a family, and he's happy, and something tragic happens to that family, and he goes on a revenge binge. Okay, that never occurred to me before. Yeah, this is that it was pretty much that paralleled Mad Max in Scotland in, yeah. minus modern technology. Yeah, which is a gross oversimplification of this story. <laughs> yes. Like the the life and times of William Wallace, which Braveheart is about. It doesn't really feel right to boil it just down to oh, it's Mad Max, but in Scotland. <laughs> but it works. I'm not going to say that it doesn't. So Braveheart. On IMDb has an 8.4 out of 10 after over 750,000 reviews. On Metascore, it has a 68 out of 100. And going more uh, of the Academy route, Braveheart got five Oscar wins, uh, 26 more wins, and 29 nominations. Took me a while to remember that word. So it got Best Picture in 1996. Uh, best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Effects, Sound Editing, and Best Makeup, which is pretty good, I'd say, all told. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think so. Um, this is not my first time watching Braveheart. Um, me neither. I think I've seen it oh, probably three or four times, yeah. but it's been a while. I don't think I've watched it three or four. I think this might only be my second maybe third time watching it. And I think that's mostly because it's a three-hour-long movie. Right. It's a lot to get into. It's a tall order to just sit down and watch Braveheart. Yes. Like, like I can't even really conceive sitting down and doing this as a minute-by-minute -minute movie, but we will talk more about that after we've sat through, through it. <laughs> the important thing is that I already know this is a good movie, and you already know this is a good movie. Yes. So... Um, I'm not sure what I'm necessarily going to look for. I think I'm going to focus mostly on Mel Gibson and his mannerisms. And by the time he got to this point, he's been acting more or less 20 years, a few years shy yeah. to really get to that point. But it's going to be interesting from my point of view, how he's evolved. And that's what I'm going to focus on as we watch this. I have a feeling that I'm going to focus on... This movie seems like one of those movies that, you know, when you haven't seen a movie for a long time and you see it again and, and you understand it in a way you never had before, mm -hmm. I think this is what's going to happen to me okay. with this movie. I think, especially with the politics, it's a politically heavy movie. I think I'm going to understand those politics and the nuances 
in a way I never have before. Yeah. My guess would be at least it's been at least ten years since, since I've seen this movie, mm. and I've changed a lot. The world has changed a lot, so I, I think that's what I'm going to get out of the movie is okay. a, a new understanding of what's going on. Sounds good. So, listeners, we are going to play you the trailer like we did last week for Vanishing Point. And when we come back from that, we'll have watched the movie. For you, it'll be like three, four minutes. For us, it'll be about three hours. So, (laughs) we'll be right back. I came back home to raise crops and, God willing, a family. So you want me to marry you then? Well, that's a bit sudden, but all right. Is that what you call a proposal? I love you. Always have. His dreams were of peace and the woman he loved. I want a home and children. It's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. But his destiny would be written in a battle for honor. As lord of these lands, I will bless this marriage by taking the bride on the first night of her union. Go back to England and tell them there that Scotland's daughters and her sons are yours no more. Bradley's new volunteers in every Scottish town. My knightly, Sir William Wallace, guardian and high protector of Scotland. Where are you going? I'm going to pick a fight. Well, we didn't get dressed up for nothing. He waits for you at York. If you are man enough to come and face him. We cannot defeat this army. We can't. And we will. If we win, we'll have what none of us have ever had before. And I with you. Would you be willing, for one chance, just one chance, to tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom? Mel Gibson. Yeah, it's been a long time since I last saw that movie. <laughs> yes. I say I I like I knew going into it that it was long. Like we knew full well exactly how long this movie was, but there's just so much of it. <laughs> Did it feel long to you? Um yes and no. It felt like a long movie, but it also had some very good pacing. Like it was always, I always felt like we were progressing. I never felt like we got to a point where I was bored with it, you know? Same. Like, I feel like this could easily be put into a miniseries, that type of thing. Yes. I was thinking about it during the movie. This might be the first epic that I recall ever watching. Mm-hmm. And it, I felt during the movie, I felt felt how epic it was the we go through so much life of William Wallace in a relatively short period of time in his life we see him as a child but things don't really get going until he returns as an adult 
courts a woman for two days, is married to her for one day, and then immediately goes to battle. Like, it's just not very long. Mm -mm. And everything happens fairly quickly, but it's so such a big part of his life that to anybody else would constitute their entire life. Yeah. And, well, it constituted his entire life, too. You know, it, it's like he says at the end of the movie sure. in the dungeon, you know, all men, you know, are alive, but how many of them truly ever live? Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say, after sitting back and watching it in its entirety, beginning to end, with only like one or two breaks for like bathroom and stuff like that, I can understand why it garnered so many accolades and won so many awards from the Academy and nominations and whatnot. But at the same time, I can also really understand why it's not like super high up there in the, the viewer ratings. Like I said, it has like what, an 86 on IMDb? Let me bring that up real quick. So I can, I know I said it before we started watching the movie. It has a 68 Metascore and an 8.4 out of 10. Like, I can understand why it's not up in the, you know, high 90s or, you know, 9 point whatever. Like, I, can, I can understand why it's not that high. I think it's just the time commitment itself is what really pushes people away. Do you think in... Cause it's, let's see, it's 2017. This was 1995, so it's mm-hmm. 20 years old. Do you think if this movie was put out now, people would feel different about the time commitment? Because a three-hour movie is not that uncommon anymore. But I think in 1995, it was, it was uncommon. Well, I mean, when you think about the really long movies, you've got Braveheart... You've got Titanic. Those are the two that immediately come to mind. Yeah. I think about, like, the Lord of the Rings movies and the Harry Potter movies. Which, while Harry Potter, at least, I don't think they clock in at a true three hours. I think they clock in, like, between two and two and a half. Yeah. But I feel like that's still in the same family as these movies that are are over that two-hour mark. Mm Mm-hmm. That, in 1995, perhaps weren't that common. I can't really think of any others. I wouldn't necessarily say... Well, Titanic, of course. I wouldn't necessarily say that the idea of an epic-length movie is so specific to a a time period. I feel like you can have an epic-length movie pretty much any time. Yeah, Gone with the Wind was super long. Oh, Gone with the Wind is so long that I refuse to watch it. Oh, Oh, Gone with the Wind is one of my favorite movies. I haven't seen it in a long time because it is such a commitment, Um, but it's one of my favorite favorite movies and isn't it one of like the best movies ever like isn't it rated one of the best movies of all time you know you can look that up okay because i'm gonna look it up while we continue yeah i think there is a specific list of i think on imdb of the top 100 movies of all time yeah i don't think gone with the wind is at the top of it though well it has a 97 on metascore which is more than uh braveheart has Ooh. okay so yeah imdb does have a top rated movies list uh, Braveheart comes in at number 75, and Gone with the Wind comes in, in at 164. Okay. So much lower than I thought, but it, it comes in way higher on the Metascore. Now, Metascore, that's like, uh, like they're pulling from all sorts of places. Exactly. And they give it an overall, hence the meta. Yeah, it's kind okay. of a, kind of an average. runtime? 177 minutes. For Braveheart. Are you looking up the runtime for Gone with the Wind? Yeah, just looking four hours. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, that's an epic. Yeah. So, back to Braveheart. 
This movie is heavy. Mm-hmm. It's emotionally very heavy. I think that might be one of the reasons that people pull away from it is that it is such a big emotional investment. It is. I mean, you start off with William being traumatized by a barn full of dead people. Right. And then he loses his father and brother. And then he comes back, loses his wife. Like, he, he is such a he loses... lifetime of loss. Yes. That it's a lot to take in. It is. What do you think about the uncle? Are you talking about... Uh, the, um... The one that comes to get him? Yes, Uncle Argyle. Yes. So, well, we might as well start going over the, the plot. So, movie starts off, like we said, young William Wallace. His father fights against the king because the king betrayed all of the, the clan's heads and whatnot. So, when Wallace is orphaned, his Uncle Argyle comes to take him away. And his Uncle Argyle is played by... Hold on. We've said his name before. One of those guys you see everywhere. Brian Cox. Yes. Who, I recognize Brian Cox off the top of my head. He played Stryker in X2, X-Men United, I want to say. Yeah, the second X-Men movie. (laughs) And... I know that's probably not the best place to pick Brian Cox from because he is in... He's in so So many things. Trying to think of where... 211 individual projects. I'm trying to think... And I pick him out. What the first thing that pops into my head when I think about Brian Cox. Mm -hmm. Kind of running through his IMDb. Something's going to jump out at me. Trouble is, he's done so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there's plenty of things on his IMDb that I recognize, but none of them are the thing that's popping out in my head that I can't quite place. Okay. I well, don't know. It'll come to me. Well, you, you asked me what I thought of Uncle Argyle. Like, what, what do you... Um, the character. I... I love this character. He's only here for maybe three minutes of screen time. Yeah, it's not that long. It's not that long, but even in the three minutes in his direct contact with young William, we already learn a lot about him. We learn a little bit about the old ways through him. The, um, how did they put it? Um, like a band song on band pipes. Outlawed, no, outlawed songs on outlawed pipes. Right. Yeah, so we we learn a little bit about the culture and the history, and it, it directs William to go off and get an education mm-hmm. that allows him to come back and have this enlightened view of the world that he feels so strongly about freedom and having a sense of country mm-hmm. that drives this whole thing. You know, there's been, there's been, I'm sure there's been plenty of people throughout Scotland who have been unhappy with the political climate and who have wanted to do something about it, but have maybe lacked that that determination and the the skill and education to and the motivation to do something about it as drastic as William Wallace did, mm. and I think his education fueled that. Yeah. Huh. Okay. If, I, I just wonder if a, if a less educated man and a less enlightened man had gone through the same things, had had a secret lover who was killed, would they have gone on to be, to act as William Wallace had? I don't think so. I think that his personal tragedy combined with his education is what made William Wallace William Wallace. Mm. Okay. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't disagree at all. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. I think in the long run of things... I'm a little disappointed that Uncle Argyle didn't stick around longer because he shows up to whisk William away 
And then, yeah, he's mentioned a couple of times once William grows up. But I feel like he... I know I kind of frame things in terms of Star Wars a lot, but (laughs) Uncle Argyle was William Wallace's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yes. He was the one that raised him up and taught him about his abilities. He made sure that his mind was sharp, and then he was able to use a sword. Like, he trained him up in both of those ways, but... After he took William away from his home, like, we don't see anything. It just jumps straight from, you know, he leaves home as a child and then he comes home as, like, if Mel Gibson was 20 years old when he did Mad Max and he comes back in 1995, he'd be, like, 38. Yeah. um, Conservatively. So he comes back as a full-grown man. Like, middle-aged, some would argue. Yeah. I think he's playing younger. Yes, but you you can't really hide Mel Gibson's age. No, no, you can't. <laughs> like he he's kind of like I don't want to say Mel Gibson is like a leather glove, but he shows his wear. <laughs> that might be the best way to put it. Um, I do appreciate that we do see so much of his childhood though, because it is so formative. I mean, his childhood is where he learns his hatred for the English. It's where we get introduced to his best friend Hamish. It's when. Him and uh, Marin have their first real interaction. You know, they have their kind of Padme and Anakin thing. It's their meet cute. It's yeah, it's their meet cute, and they children. are children. Uh, and then he just goes away, and he comes back. And as he comes back, like he runs into Hamish is the first one that actually like interacts with him. But in that wedding, he comes upon to see everybody. Like, he sees Marin from across the party, and he, like, instantly makes a connection with her. Yeah. And one thing that I pointed out, because he, like, pursues her romantically, it's like, is he in love with her, or is he in love with the idea of her that he has cultivated over the years that they've been separated? I think a little bit of both. I think that he has been in love with her since she gave him that thistle. Since the last time she he saw her as, as children. Mm-hmm. I think he's been in love with her since then. And I think that he has cultivated that love based on that one memory. That one time that she showed like a tenderness and a kindness to him. Yes. At his time of grief. Yeah. Yes. It's just, it just, it's like you said, it's very quick. Yes. He comes back on day one. They have like two days of courtship and then they marry in secret and it's like, we just go, go, go. Yes. Now, I think that even for the time and the place, that is fast. Yeah. But... The whole idea of courtship and marriage was completely different than what we experience now. Yeah. You know, we could court, nowadays, we could court for years. Um, But back then, I mean, marriage wasn't just about love. If you, you, you needed to procreate so that you could have help on your farm. Mm. Like, you had to have children because they were free labor. Oh. And women had to get married because that's who was going to provide for them. And men had to get married because they needed someone to keep the house. Like, it was very much people had to partner up into family units just to maintain, you know, a, what's it called, Um, sustenance living. Like, just to maintain their own lives. They Mm. had to team up in family units. And that idea of marrying and procreating is kind of central to the conflict when William comes back from his, you know, growing up pilgrimage. Yes. Because Longshanks, the king, has reinstituted the idea of Prima Nocte, where the local lord just comes and whisks away brides on their wedding night so that he can put English sons in their bellies. 
And find this slightly amusing. I mean, you know, disgusting and crude and awful, but slightly amusing because do they know how? I mean, they don't. But one time having sex does not mean you're going to get pregnant. Well, unless you're William Wallace, but that's much later in the film. <laughs> yes. Like, do they, I mean, just that they think that, you know, this English lord taking this woman's virginity is going to impregnate her. Well, it's not just about procreation. Like you said, there's no way to, to guarantee that that one time is going to produce an English-born heir. I think it's... More the question. Because she's going to go home. Yeah. She's going to have sex with her husband probably many times. It's the question of legitimacy. It's also... And if she gets pregnant within the first two or three weeks, no one's going to know whose child it is. Well, I mean, outside of the parentage issue, there's also the fact that it's incredibly demoralizing. Yes. I mean, taking something that as... You know, Christians and Catholics or whatever they specifically are. I'm pretty sure they're all Catholic because they mentioned the Pope. Yeah. But as Catholics, the idea of marriage is so sacred between two individuals. The idea that someone else comes along and violates that from the get-go. Yes. Like, that's religiously offensive as well as morally offensive. And I say morally as in, like, an individual's morals, but also, like, as a morale type of thing. Yes. Like, that idea that 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 thumb, that oppression, is so directly pressed on the people. Yes. And, I mean, it's it's the main reason that William and Maren get married in private. They have that secret marriage after their incredibly short courtship. I wonder if he feels guilty about that. Marrying her in secret? Marrying her in secret. Now, I always... My memory of... The movie always led me to believe that their problems, their conflict that ended in her death was because they married in secret. It actually had nothing to do with that. Oh, yeah. Her death was, in my opinion, like, had nothing to do with William. You... My opinion slightly differs. Yeah. In the scene where the one, the soldier attempts to rape her... All right, well, let's set it... So... After William and Marin are married, she is walking through the marketplace and one of the English soldiers catches her eye and like leads her off into an alleyway. Yeah. And then... So he attempts to rape her and she's fighting, of course. And she bites his cheek. She gets a pretty good bite in. Um, now, you are of the opinion that the, that bite is the violence against the troops that the head guy, the magistrate... Yeah. Is referring to when he kills Marin as justification for killing her. Um, I'm not so sure about that. I kind of think that it was William coming to her rescue and attacking. There were three guards there total, attacking the three guards. I think it was that attack mm-hmm. that that the magistrate was punishing when he killed her. Yeah. See, I don't think the magistrate would have killed Marin if if not he, if not for the fact that she fought back. As a citizen of their feudal system, uh-huh. she should have just acquiesced to this official's, you know, demands. Yeah. And the fact that she fought back, that's why she was tied up in the square and executed. I think the fact that they want to kill William as well directly stems from the fact that he that fought he, them. Yeah. Like, they each, in their own way, attacked soldiers. Yes. She was in defense, and he it, he was in defense of her. Yes. I'm not convinced that her death was a punishment for her own actions. Mm-hmm. They do mention a couple times throughout the movie 
that she was killed to draw him out so that he could be punished. One time was a blatant lie. It was when the um, the lady-in-waiting was talking to the princess. Nothing truthful came out of her mouth. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, and then, But another time, William himself said it. But watching the scene, I don't know. Not I'm too convinced. Yeah, I'm contradicting myself. I'm just not convinced of the motivations for that scene. Yeah. Of her death. I think... I, I think that violence was happening and she was obviously part of it so the mad so they strung her up and the magistrate killed her right i'm not sure that there was a lot of motivation going on yeah so you're on my side i guess so there you go (laughs) (laughs) so the important thing is that nell gibson's wife is killed and he gets his revenge i said before we watched this movie that it was mad max set in scotland but the mad max part of it it happens relatively early in the movie. Right. Like, it's really hard to judge when things happen in the movie as far as runtime is concerned because it is so long. Like, looking at the plot summary on my phone here, like, it is several paragraphs, but at the same time, they go through things a lot quicker than they do in the the movie there. But if we were drawing a one-to-one parallel between Mad Max and Braveheart, they'd have very similar runtimes because you would cut off after he gets his revenge on the garrison because William comes back after Marin is killed and he slaughters that entire garrison with the help of the yeah townspeople, of course. But yeah, he like makes it look like he's going to give himself up and then he just wrecks them. Yeah, that's that, uh, that scene where he's riding in on the horse and he's holding his hands out and he goes to put them up above his head, just all shot in slow motion, and then he grabs... It was like a flail or something like that. Yeah, grabs it and just brings it down on the the soldier with uh, holding his horse. That is iconic mm. to me. It, it's the one of the main images of Braveheart. It, it's one of the representative images of the movie mm-hmm. when he does that, and it's I love it because there's so much tension building, and we've already had this big release. Of tension when when the magistrate killed Marin and we didn't get to like there was no break there was no like moment to breathe we went right into William coming in and tricking them and destroying them and it was extended and it drove home like the emotional weight you know why that was such a brilliant looking move why? because it's from Die Hard <laughs> there is a part in Die okay. Hard where John McClane goes to Hans Gruber and he's making it look like he's giving himself up, but he has a gun taped to his back between his shoulders in the very same way that William Wallace had a flail stuck into the back of his shirt. Yeah, but John McClane didn't have that mane of hair to hide a weapon in. Okay, that's true. I will concede that point. (laughs) But (laughs) just saying... John McClane did it first. Okay. And then several years later, William Wallace did it. Okay. In the movie, of course. So the the sacking of this garrison is, like, there are so many parts to it and so many moving pieces and everything is moving around. It was very thrilling to watch just because it is so raw. Like, William doesn't have a plan at this point. He's just acting on adrenaline and fury. Yeah. Like, he had a plan riding into it, but I'm pretty sure he didn't know exactly how it was going to go. Right, and he hadn't prearranged. 
gathered a little army around him. Mm -hmm. He just went in by himself, his one weapon and his one secret. And, you know, he he didn't have the plan that people were going to join him and help him and they were going to kill everybody. Yeah. So... And then by the end of that onslaught, he had the magistrate up against that post and he slit his throat in the same way that the magistrate slit Mern's throat. And he was like, ah... That was satisfying. It was satisfying. And I'm very squeamish, so starting out the movie with slitting throats, I was t- that was tough for me. I feel like you could, in a sense, make an entire movie from the beginning of Braveheart up to the part where he destroys that garrison because it is, you know, a story of him. He, he's a man that wants to be have peace, and then he's pushed to the edge, resorts to violence. It's you know. The story of Mad Max. Right. But it keeps going. <laughs> yes. We transition from Mad Max into a war movie. Yes. It's like if Max hadn't stopped with killing the the gang. Mm-hmm. If he had kept going and killing everybody who had anything to do with the gang or ever didn't stand up for for doing the right thing. It's like it, it's like if he just continued to kill everybody. Yeah. As if there as if there would have been like Someone higher than the toe cutter. Yeah. Like if there was a, a king of bikies. Yep. You know, he would have continued his way to there. But as far speaking of kings, so Longshanks is the king of England and oh, and he is played by the aforementioned Pac Patrick McGowan, or McGowan? I don't know. What did you think of, like, the villains in this movie? You have Longshanks, you have his son, Prince Edward, um, and I think they're kind of the... They're the main villains, and then there's the, the Scottish lords who flip-flop back and forth the entire movie. Yeah. Um, I think Longshanks is an excellent, excellent villain because he knows what he wants, mm-hmm. and... He is very cunning about it and very aggressive and violent, but he's surrounded by incompetence, mostly Mm. by his son. Yeah. His son. (laughs) Yeah. Prince Edward does not do many favors. I I have got to say, the the story around Longshanks, like his court there, Mm -hmm. felt... I say a little Games of Thronesy to me, whereas Prince Edward was kind of Loras Tyrellish. Oh yes, to, or either Renly or Lauren or uh, yes, Loras. And I say the French princess kind of felt a little Cersei-ish. Yeah, but that like was not, my suggestion. Not, not like completely, but like far not onto in the an evil spectrum. Way. Yeah. And Longshanks was definitely a Tywin Lannister type, constantly frustrated by. The shortcomings of his children. <laughs> yes. And adamant about flexing his muscles and making sure that everyone is well aware of his abilities and his command over the situation. I thought it was very well done, for sure. Yeah, he was he was scary. Mm, yeah. <laughs> there was a scene um, pretty early on where uh, Longshanks was in like his war room mm-hmm. and the princess joined him in place of the prince. And so she's observing him talking strategy and whatnot with his with his guys. And she's kind of circling the table, just being quiet and observing. And the way he treats her, the way he talks to her and looks at her, feels very dangerous. Yeah. And you really feel, again, I, there's a lot of tension. This movie is very tense. Um, there's a lot of tension in the room. You feel like she knows that... She's in a dangerous place. 
and she's just trying to stay one step ahead of him and trying to do the right thing, the right power moves. She's a good person, um, but she's also aware of her power and lack thereof and potential for more. Right. She just does it while being a good person. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't like that scene because it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. I feel like she's going to die any second. It's very, yeah, it's very uncomfortable. But I like her as a character very much. I don't think I was ever truly worried for her because she has plot armor. Like, yeah, there was no <laughs> way that the king would have killed her himself. No. Because that would have, you know, prompted war with France again. Yeah. Which he really doesn't have the men or the funding for. But one big thing in the plot summary that comes up next is the Battle of Stirling Bridge, which is the first big battle where William Wallace shows up and his, the half of his face yes, is painted. in speech. I thought this battle happened later in the movie. Like, I didn't realize that it happened... That the iconic battle yeah. was the very first one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I do appreciate the way they framed it where the Scottish lords are there and they're like, yeah, you know, we're just here as a formality and then we're going to broker peace with the English and then we'll all go home. And then Wallace shows up and he's like, no, 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 no. We are going to fight this. And so he goes out to the front with all the lords and he's like taunting the English. And then they come back and he's like, all right, you are going to listen to me. Take your horses out this way. We're going to go this way. And yeah, he's got strategy. Exactly. Because he studied and he's, yeah, in he's Rome and France and he knows these different things. And he gives that stirring and iconic speech where he's like, you know, they can take our lands, but they can never take our freedom. And I actually thought that speech was a little longer. Like when you watch it fresh, it's actually kind of short. Yes. Like, and I don't even think he says they can take our lands. I think he can, he they, says they, they can, can take, take our, our lives. lives. They can't take our freedom. Um, I think that speeches like that, that are, I think speeches like that, those motivational speeches, Mm -hmm. I think it's good when they're short. Yeah. You don't want to bore people. Um, You don't want to get too into like empty rhetoric. So I thought it was very skillful that he kept it short, sweet, brought up the points he needed to, gave them a catchphrase to latch on to, and then just go. Yeah. Do it. And I mean, he, he wins the day. Like, he routes the English really effectively. Yes. And in return for that, the Scottish lords, you know, knight him and make him protector of Scotland. And then he turns around and he's like, well, now I'm going to invade England. Yeah. Which, I looked at the situation and, like I said, this movie is based on a real person. So, I mean, the, the large movements and story points are history, so to speak. But the way I see it, and this is why I'm not a great military revolutionary leader it's like if you're trying to push people out of your country well there is a very defined and reliable border between england and scotland in hadrian's wall now i'm pretty sure that was built in roman times yes to to keep out the the barbarians up north and so i feel like you'd all you'd have to do is push to hadrian's wall take hadrian's wall and then reinforce it and be like okay from here on out independent scotland you know english stay out but no he pushes all the way to York and then takes the city and kills the king's nephew, mm-hmm. brother, cousin. It's nephew. the prince's cousin. Yeah. So. It's his nephew. Yeah. Like lops his head, clean off, sends it to the king in a basket. And so, and so having taken York, Wallace kind of realizes that, you know, he needs the support of the lords. And so he starts interacting more with Robert the Bruce. 
mm-hmm. who is the rightful king of Scotland. Like is the, he, though? Like, he is the one that, if someone were there to wear the crown, Robert the Bruce would be it. And, of course, Robert the Bruce is being kind of manipulated behind the scenes by his father, who has some sort of illness. I think he has leprosy. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Yeah. Um, but what did, what did you think of Robert the Bruce? I... I'm very conflicted about him. I think... Yeah. I think he has a good arc throughout... The movie. Uh, he starts off showing a strong face to the world, but behind the scenes, very weak. Mm-hmm. And he turns that around. You know, there are times... He, he comes to a point where he shows a very weak face to the world when he betrays William. And then that, you know, repenting of that weakness brings him the strength that he needs to to take the crown. Yeah. And by the end of the movie. And to learn his lesson. Yeah, I'm... That he needs to get rid of his dad, first of all. I, too, am very conflicted about Robert the Bruce because... He does a lot of damage. He turns around by the end, but at the same time... It's kind of too little too late. Yeah. I mean, he didn't... He did not have a hand in the eventual capture of William. Yeah, that was the other Scottish lord. Yeah. So, you know, I recognize that. But his betrayal at... mm, Falkirk? Yep. Yep, his betrayal at Falkirk... Was demoralizing. Oh, absolutely. When... Personally, to William. Yeah. When they get to that point where William is chasing Longshanks and that one knight and that one guard stay behind to yeah. like face him and that knight's helmet gets knocked off and it's Robert underneath. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Like, I that surprised me. Oh, it did. I was going to ask you. I didn't want to give it away. I was going to ask you... Do you know who the the knight is next to Longshanks? Yeah, because yeah, I, I didn't want to give it away that it was somebody we care about. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so you were surprised by that. Now, granted, it took me a moment to like recognize him. Right, it's a such a different setting than we've seen him in before. Exactly. Um, but yeah, when I realized that it was him and that he had like you had the two other lords that betrayed him, Lachlan and Mornay, yeah, that turned away and fled the battle, but. But, Bruce was there next to the King of England. Yes. Like, he was there with Longshanks. Now, were his troops there as well, or were his troops just nowhere? I'm willing to bet his, his troops were nowhere. Yeah, I that, I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the Battle of Falkirk, though, uh, there is a scene where the king's son's wife, yes, Princess, Princess Isabella of France, is sent to meet with William and... This is after they've taken York. He comes out of York and he goes into her tent and she like delivers this whole thing where the king's like, you need, I, I come work, bring word from the king. You need to surrender. Here's, we're going to give you all this stuff. Yep. You know, be happy with it. And he's like, no, I'm not going to be happy with it. And there, the excellent part of this scene is you have that one court advisor who starts talking in Latin about how Wallace is a barbarian and a savage and all he speaks are lies. And then William comes in speaking Latin again back to him. It's one of those things where like the person doesn't know that the person they're talking crap about can speak their language. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it is excellent because then he starts up with Latin because he trained in Rome and then he fires back with With French, French. which is her native language. So it's like, yeah, that that was pretty great. It's a nice little dig. And then of course that, makes her send her guards away so that they can converse in private. Yes. And he lays down that whole, you know, Longshanks ain't as great as you may think it is. 
Right, telling her the truth about what his armies really do. Mm-hmm. And they definitely make a connection. Well, <laughs> Well, yeah, she's, they make a connection. She's enamored with him before that meeting ever takes place because of what her handmaiden says. Yes. Like, she, the handmaiden tells her this wonderfully romantic story about uh, the, the army killed his lover and then... To draw him out, they desecrated the grave of his father and brother, and then laid a trap for him at his lover's grave. Mm-hmm. I'm like, and I don't think I ever noticed before in previous viewings that it's all a load of crap. Yeah, it is a very elaborate lie. Yes, <laughs> and it is very romantic sounding. It is, which I will give the handmaid. She's got an amazing penchant for storytelling. Yes, she does for sure. So. The princess walks in already crushing on William pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And then she sees him and he looks like Mel Gibson. Yeah. So like, she's like done for. I gotta say. And, and he speaks French. So. I called Mel Gibson a leather glove, but that is not an indictment against his looks. He's still a very handsome man yes. in 1995. He's got those bright blue eyes mm-hmm. and the long flowing hair that is like strategically braided on either side of his face. Yep. Like, he cuts a very striking feature. Yes. So, they make a connection, which proves to save his life a couple times. Mm-hmm. Not because in the she end, specifically but... warns him. Yeah. Um, twice she saves his life in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, while we're talking about the princess and her, her lady-in-waiting... Um, the lady-in-waiting making eyes at Hamish. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I noticed uh, that. Yep, I love it. We haven't talked about Hamish or... No, oh, yeah, we've skipped over so much. We'll cut back and talk about people. Yeah, well, now's a good time as any. Yeah. So, William has a couple of, you know, inner circle people. You've got uh, Campbell and his son Hamish, and then... The Irishman. Whose name is Stephen? Yes, I remember because it's a weird name. I mean, it's not a weird name, which is why it's weird. Um, and then Scarface, what's his name? I don't remember his name at all. I was kind of disappointed that he wasn't featured more prominently, like in the second half of the movie, because he was featured prominently in the first half of the movie. He, of course, was the husband at the at the wedding. Yep. Which, by the way, just a little side note: the whole scene with him and his wife when she was being taken away. Uh, was beautiful, mm. where she she like calms everybody down and she pushes away the guards and she says goodbye to him and that she's gonna be okay and that she loves him. Like the way she her gentleness took control of the situation. Yeah, and actually taking that control of the situation took part of the power that this army and England as a whole was trying to exert on them. Took part of that power back. Yeah. She had some level of control over the situation, and I I thought it was a beautiful moment scene. And tragic. And very tragic. She's and very sad. And... Okay, rewinding all the way back to that scene. Yeah. The Lord showed up to this wedding. Oh, like crazy early. Like middle of the afternoon. Yeah. He's like, I've come to claim her for her wedding night. And I'm yeah, like, like, dude, it's not even close to night. Yeah. Like, he like they're just, still having a good time. He is only showing up at that party to throw a bucket of water. On everyone's good time. Yeah. Because they hadn't eaten dinner yet. They were just in the play games and dance around to music phase of yeah. the party. They, they were just even, getting started. Hadn't even had dinner yet. Yeah. And he's coming up here and taking her away. And it's like, ah, absolute worst time. Not that there's a good time for Prima Nocta. 
But just but there is also a worse time. At least let them enjoy their party. Yeah. I mean, granted, it's not like they said I do and then he's there. All right, let's go. Right. Like, but you did get the that. sense that it was just getting going. Yeah. Yeah. So, so going back to the sidekicks, you've got Campbell, Hamish, and Steven, and then Scarface, whose name I can't remember. <laughs> okay, I'm going to look it up because I can't keep calling him Scarface. Yeah. So, Campbell is, like I said, Hamish's father. He's played by James Cosmo, who is most recognizable to me as Commander J.R. Mormont from Game of Thrones. <laughs> yes. He also played Father Christmas in the Chronicles of Narnia. And, yes, yes, yes. And I haven't seen Train Spotting, but he plays Mr. Renton in Train Spotting. And then Hamish is played by Brendan Gleeson, who is um Mad Eye Moody. Seriously? No. I haven't scrolled down that far yet. No, isn't wait, okay, it's not the same act okay. No, I, it is. It is? It is. Okay. Hamish is Mad Eye Moody. I was seriously questioning myself, so I'm like, well I know the name. The name is Mad Eye Moody. But it doesn't look like him. But 20 years is a long time. Yep. <laughs> yep. Okay, first of all, Scarface, his name is Morrison. Okay. And he's been in other things, obviously. Um, he was in Gladiator. Okay. He was in Sin City. He was in Guard of the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Oh, yeah? Who do you play? Tulk? Probably one of the Ravagers. Probably. There was a there was a lot of people in the background. Yeah. But yeah, he's been he's been all over the place. Yep. So um Steven, the Irishman, he let's see. So I'm just looking at the biography for um Tommy Flanagan, who plays Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um I was just curious about the scars. He got the scars before he ever started acting. He was attacked, um, as a DJ he was attacked. Mm. Um he almost died. But it wasn't until after that that a friend of his was like, hey, why don't you try acting? Yeah. Okay. So David O'Hara, who played Stephen the Irishman. Okay. He was in a Harry Potter movie. Well, of course he was. Very much like... um, Brendan Gleeson? Brendan Gleeson. He was in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. He played Albert Runcorn. Do you remember that name? I do remember the name. He's a Death Eater. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, he did bad things. Okay. It wasn't particularly featured, but the name is around. Now, this might be interesting. The TV show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., he's listed in the cast credits as Alistair Fitz, which... I knew it! Okay, so we have fallen off watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yep. And and I, I had a theory that the real reason that Fitz in the, in the Matrix world had gone so bad was because his father had been introduced into his life. Mm -hmm. And we haven't watched enough to confirm that, but I think that confirms it. Okay, I get you. But, okay, so of his sidekicks, I've got to say, I'm a big fan of Campbell because of who his actor is, but Hamish and Steven definitely, like, are his two his, yes. right and left hand men. I love the way that Steven is introduced as like this crazy guy that comes out of nowhere and ends up saving William's life. But the the fact that him and Hamish have such a long history together, like it's hard for me to pick a favorite between the two of them. Oh, I would have to say Hamish. Um, I like the callback to his childhood. We saw him. He was the really, really ugly redhead kid. Yeah. Um, and I like the callback and the little things like the stone and how Hamish is always punching him in the face. Mm-hmm. It's like his signature move is punching William in the face. I like that. I like the callback. I like that, like, they picked up their friendship where it left off as children. And I like that he chose him as one of his captains. When he was knighted, he 
he had three captains who oh, they said hmm, there were specific words that they said about them, like formal words, and I can't remember what they are. Um, but it was the Irishman that I've already forgotten his name, Stephen, Stephen, Campbell, and Hamish. Yeah were his three captains. And this is where I start to get disappointed that Morrison wasn't a captain. Mm-hmm. Kind of thought he should be. But after that point, he's kind of no longer featured as much as he was before that point. So um, I think Morrison's story kind of loses steam after they destroy the garrison and they go kill the local lord. It's Morrison that kills the local lord as revenge for Prima Nocta. Yes. I feel like at that point he can just kind of step back and not be featured near as much. But we got totally off track. Oh my goodness, Because we got yes. talking after the Battle of Falkirk. That's where we left off in talking about the plot. Where Wallace, yeah. Wallace is betrayed and almost, almost captured. And he would have been captured if not for Stephen. Yes. Stephen, actually when we first meet Stephen, he saves uh, William's life. Yep. He, he, he happens to arrive at... At Wallace's army at the same time as this other guy. And Stephen recognizes him as somebody untrustworthy, gives him a funny feeling type of thing. So William is out hunting and the the other new guy who is unnamed tries to kill William. Stephen saves his life. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely set up that we're supposed to believe that Stephen and this other guy are both trying to kill William. But it turns out that, that no. <laughs> yeah, that Stephen... Was killing the other guy yes. to save well. Yeah, he was in the woods there to kill the other guy. Yeah, um, and of course he he talks. Okay, sometimes he says Father, and sometimes he says Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now I know some religions see God and Jesus as the same person, so I'm not really sure if he's flip flopping back and forth. I'm on pretty whether sure he's talking to the Father or whether he's talking to Jesus. When he's looking up and he says Father, he's talking to you know the voice in his head that he attributes to God. And I think he also just uses Jesus as an exclamation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think that's the distinction. The di- okay. Yeah. Because um, he makes a comment about being sent to save William's life. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, his heritage really comes in handy at Falkirk because Longshanks has hired a bunch of Irish conscripts. And yeah. there's that great start to the battle where the two infantry forces are running at each other. And then right before they clash, they slow down and like start shaking hands and, and greeting each other. And it, the way it irks Longshanks is so satisfying. <laughs> it is really satisfying. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that it really made much of a difference. You, you, we got a decent look at the size of the Irish army. It's not that big. Yeah. The, con- the group of conscripts was not huge. No. But, but it was something. Yeah. And of course, the whole reason they could have the Battle of Falkirk is so- because Isabella warns William that, you They're- know... Getting that they're becoming surrounded. Yeah. Forces are coming in from Edinburgh and over from the other coast, and then coming up conscripts from Ireland. So yeah. So so William gets away with the help of the Irishman and a bit from the help of Robert, and we finally lose Campbell. Yeah. Campbell had the un, the unlucky streak of bit, getting critically wounded in each and every in battle each they and every fought. Battle. You know, in the second battle, if I'm not mistaken, he had his hand chopped off, right? I think he got his hand chopped off in the first battle, and then he got the axe to the gut in the second battle. Yes. Yeah. It was something else. It was a skirmish that he got an arrow to the chest. Yeah, that was when they were taking out the garrison. That's right. Yeah. Um, Critically wounded in every single skirmish battle thing. They made a big deal to us about when he got shot in the chest with the arrow. Mm -hmm. And it was funny and painful and a little gory. 
they made they made absolutely no mention of him getting his hand cut off. Oh yeah, they downplayed that hard. Yeah. I think that was kind of a, a, a missed opportunity to inject some humor or some lightheartedness or to show more of his personality mm-hmm. that we enjoy seeing. Yeah. I it was weird. If you're not gonna do anything with it, why go through the effort, special effects effort to show us him getting his hand cut off? I don't know. Yeah. So after William escapes from Falkirk, he pretty much goes on a little bit of a revenge tour, taking out the lords that betrayed him at the battle. Yes. That was definitely a part of the movie that I understood better now than I ever have before. Mm -hmm. And it was still rather surreal, especially the first guy with the horse. Yeah. Like he was dreaming about Wallace and his guilt was... You know, really getting to him. Mm-hmm. And then he wakes up and Wallace rides into his bedroom on a horse. Oh, yeah. And, and then, then after killing him with like a ball and chain, which I think is pretty metaphorical because like if they acquiesce to England and they are prisoners tied to a ball and chain, I yes. found that pretty interesting. But yeah, Wallace, instead of going back the way he came, takes his horse and dives out the castle window into the moat, which have you ever heard of a movie called Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken? <gasps> I love movie so much i love that movie so much <laughs> 1991's it's like it's wild like hearts the, can't be broken it's rated g it's like the ultimate chick flick one hour 28 minutes like it's drama got, family drama it's got you know innocent and sweet love it's got excitement it's got good music and it has horses it is, oh, it is such a good movie. I should watch that. That's the... Oh, I get that song stuck in my head all the time. Oh, what song? Oh, um, okay, I gotta think about how it starts. Um, the boardwalk in Atlantic City. Life can be peaches and cream. I've never heard that song oh, before. Oh, gosh, I can't remember how it goes. But that's uh, the movie Cinderella, that I thought of. You will find your fella, the one you've been waiting for, in romantic, enchanted Atlantic City. <laughs> something, something, something. I get it stuck on my head all the time. Yeah. I've seen that movie on television, running on a Sunday or Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Two or three times. And when he goes out that window on that horse, that's the movie I think of. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, granted. And in. Braveheart, that horse is dead. Oh, yeah. That horse is just dead meat as soon as it goes out the window. Yeah. like they, Because it turns. Yeah. And it lands, like, on its head and side. So, like, in the context of the story, they're, they're, you're supposed to believe that the horse broke its neck when it hit the water. But no, yeah. that, that horse was a sack puppet when uh, they yeah. threw it out. <laughs> yes. I mean, that horse... And if you watch Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, then you will see how horses are supposed to dive. Yeah. So that they don't get hurt. And the, and the uh, rider does not have to jump off. Nope. They can ride that horse all the all way, into, way the water. into the water. Yeah. That's... that's for... Just close your eyes. Yeah. It's pardon the pun, but that is a horse of a different color. <laughs> so, <laughs> everyone is kind of freaked out by Wallace's revenge murder tour and Robert is really getting anxious about it. And of course, Longshanks wants William dead at like any cost. And so Longshanks sends Isabella again as a trap. Like he's going to send Isabella as an envoy. And when Wallace shows up to meet Isabella, it's just going to be a room of assassins. Yes. Well, she lets him know ahead of time that it's going to be a room of assassins. And so this little house that they've got set up that they're going to meet at him and Hamish 
push the guards inside, lock the door, and then burn the house down with all the assassins inside. And yeah, and that's 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 something. I, yeah, it is something. I I have a hard time with it. I have a hard time with the just the blatant murder. But then I, you have to remember that they are there to murder him. Yeah. They are specifically assassins there to murder him. So in reality, it's a self-defense move, but it still feels very like like the, the trope of, of, of locking people in a church and setting the church on fire. Like it just feels a lot like that, yeah. which feels extremely wrong. So I don't know. It's something. Well, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of Mel Gibson trapping people and, you know, having them burned to death. I mean, locking them all in the cottage is pretty different than him locking Johnny to the overturned ute. Because Johnny had no intention of killing Max, but these guys in the building had every intention of killing William. Well, no, I, I still feel funny about it there because with Johnny, it was specific. It was Max wanting to kill Johnny, so he took very specific action against a specific person. In Braveheart, it was just a mass killing. Mm-hmm. Well, they were just runs. A blind mass killing. So Based I still just don't know. I, I mean, but I it's know. but it's after this that he goes and meets Isabella for a second time. Yes, and it's this time that uh, their meeting goes a little differently mm-hmm. because there are fewer people keeping an eye on them. Yes. <laughs> now, thinking about Isabella, I just oh, I feel so bad for her. I mean, an arranged marriage is one thing, but an arranged marriage to a man who has no interest in women and being under the level of scrutiny that she's under, she can't fulfill her needs. Yeah. And I mean, if she so, wanted to fulfill her needs, all she had to do was Find William, pretty much. Yeah, so her having that night with William, I think that went a long way towards her fulfilling her potential for power. Yeah, and she definitely gets more bold after that meeting. Yes, she definitely gets more bold. Yeah. I think the way that he treated her, even his very first meeting, he made a comment about, they were talking about Marin, um, and, and he made a comment about seeing Marin's strength in Isabella's eyes mm-hmm. and the way he the way he treats her like she has strength and like that she's important and that she is worthy of being cherished and worthy of being loved both physically and emotionally gives her a lot of strength she's not getting at home yeah and it really it really shows she's much more powerful after she sleeps with him than before yeah. yeah. Well, as we learn by the end of the movie, mm-hmm. that one night... Right, because apparently you only have to have sex once and get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and I, I gotta say, fast-forwarding to the end, where Longshanks is literally on his deathbed, yes. and she gets right up against his ear, and she's like, your bloodline is gonna die, because I have a baby in me right now, and it is not your son's. Yeah. Now, and my... she never specifically says... Yeah. That it's Wallace's. Yeah, my memory was that she told him it was Wallace's. So when she didn't, I was surprised. And of course, they both, the, the king and the prince are both in the room. They both know whose baby it is. I don't even think the prince fully hears what's going on because she whispers it into Longshank's ear. I think the prince is kind of like straining to hear what she's saying. Right. But he is so inconsequential. Yeah, he really that is. That... Her power plays are between her and the king, not between her and the prince. Mm-hmm. He has no power to play with. Yeah. So, so 
while we're on the subject of Prince Edward, yeah, um, Philip was his lover, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay, just wanted to make sure you saw the same thing I saw. Yeah, I mean, they made it pretty obvious, but yeah, there were some pretty knowing glances. Yeah, I also got a kick out of the fact that Philip was thrown out of a window, kind of like how Bran was thrown out of a window in the first episode of Game of Thrones. Like, there was a lot about this movie as I was watching it, and I was like. Game of Thrones there, Game of Thrones there, Game of Thrones there. <laughs> like, so much of Game of Thrones' is visual aesthetic can be connected to this movie. <laughs> yeah. And I think that goes back to the fact that George R. R. Martin was kind of inspired by, you know, I think it's the War of the Roses or something like that. Mm-hmm. Something around this time frame, this medieval England thing. Yeah. All right, where were we? So we were talking about... William's murder tour, and then we had just gotten to the point where he spends the night with Isabel. Around this same time is also when Robert the Bruce gets really upset with his father. Yes. Who's been, you know, pulling the strings behind me, like, gets to a point where even Robert is willing to stand up to his father and be like, hey, you're not going to pull the strings anymore. You know, I don't want anything to do with you. And like we said before, I feel like with in terms of Robert's story, it's way too little, way too late. Yeah. Because even after he disowns his father, he's still pretty much betrayed by that other Scottish lord. They lure him up to Edinburgh. I think his name is Craig. And like Stephen and Hamish are like, you know, William, this is a trap. This is so obviously a trap. Right. And William is like, look at us. We are in squalor. There is literally nothing we can do without Robert the Bruce. And even if it is a trap, I just need to go meet with him. Yeah. And, oh, it's, it's awful because he walks into it and not even Robert knows it's a trap. Like, it's all this other guy. Yes. But... And you can see... You can see the look on Robert's face as he's noticing things. And he's putting it together. Again, this is happening in slow motion. The look of horror on his face as he's realizing what is happening. Yeah. Or at least what's about to happen. Yes. Okay. It's right about this point in the movie that OMG the Christ imagery. Oh. Like, it is so It's pretty blatant. Yeah. Like, get a giant spoonful of peanut butter and a very small piece of bread and spread that peanut butter on there. That is how thick the Christ imagery is. Like he rides into Edinburgh with his like cloak thing draped over his head as if he was Christ riding into Jerusalem. Yes. You know, it is so blatant and so obvious. And then the fact that he's taken and beaten by the soldiers and brought before the the religious council to be tried for treason against the king and then he's brought into the final courtyard with like a wooden beam across his shoulders and he's tied up with his arms open wide it's like it is so blatantly obvious and just hitting you over the head so hard (laughs) it is no surprise whatsoever that mel gibson went on to direct another movie called the passion of the christ yes so, according to Wikipedia, the Wikipedia plot summary, it, he is brought to London. Okay. Like, he's okay. brought all the way to so the So, they're all power. in London. Yeah. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't sure what, where the seat of power was in the 1200s or so. Mm-hmm. So, you said that every time you've watched this movie before, you've always glossed over the torture scenes. Yes. 
There was a section of of uh, maybe five minutes that I've never seen before that yeah. I watched. Yeah, and I gotta say, considering how bloody his later movies can be, like this scene in particular was very bloodless. It was very bloodless. Um, I mean, it was less bloody than like the battle scenes. I was like, the battle scenes were, were like, much like different. I said before. I'm pretty squeamish. So I spent a decent portion of the movie with my hand over my eyes. Mm -hmm. That was definitely aided by the fact that I've seen it a couple times before. So (laughs) So you knew knew, when to. I knew when to (laughs) cover my eyes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But even even the bloodlessness of the torture scene did not help me. Yeah, just the suggestion of it. Yeah, the suggestions and like the tools, showing the tools... Um, I was okay with the stretching scene, though. Yeah. Yeah, that didn't that didn't really bother me that yeah. much. I will say one thing for the torture scene. It's very iconic. And, of course, that last line that William has where he just cries freedom and yes. then just slips away before he's ultimately beheaded. Um, just the imagery of him tied down, using every last ounce of energy to cry that last word. Like, because they quiet the crowd down and say, oh, the prisoner wants to say one last word. And instead of crying mercy, he cries freedom. Yes. And as he turns his head and looks into the crowd, he sees Marin one more time. Yes. And there's an interesting thing about this movie. In several instances, William is asleep. And he has these dreams where the dead people that he has seen are talking to him. As when he's a boy, he's spoken to by one of the hanging corpses in a dream. And then later on, by his dead father, appears to him in a dream. And then Marin shows up, I think, once or twice mm-hmm. in dreams. And I have to wonder, like, why not do more of that? Because I found that very interesting. And I mean, I'm not saying that it needed to happen, like, every time he falls asleep, some dead person shows up to talk to him. But right. I just found that whole idea of him being so affected by taking life that it kind of comes back to haunt him. Yeah, I like the idea that... He doesn't take death lightly. That I think it drives home the point of why he's doing it. Yeah. For the freedom of his people. Now, the dream where he sees Marin walking in the woods in the with woods. the cloak on, did that remind you of Lord of the Rings at all? No. Because it reminded me. I'm not a big me. Lord of the Rings person. There is a scene in one of the Lord of the Rings movies where yeah. Aragorn is asleep and Arwen shows up. And. Oh, he's like, yeah, this is a dream. That. And she's like, if it is, it's a good dream. And Aragorn's like, I will kill any man that wakes me from this dream. I got those vibes yeah. from this movie. So that's probably where they got it from. <laughs> yeah. I was a little disappointed in that scene that as soon as he figures out that it's Marin and he says, this is a dream. And she's like, yeah, it's time to wake up. And it's like, ah. Like, she didn't impart any wisdom on him or anything. Yeah. Like, what was the point of appearing to him if all you're going to do is wake him up? Yeah, like, the dream he had with his father, it was one of those things like, William, you need to be strong and you need to be courageous and love your country. And then he doesn't get any more wisdom from any more ghost dreams after that. (laughs) And he's just haunted by the fact of their death. Yeah. So, William Wallace dies at the end. Yep. And the very last scene is on the fields of Bannockburn, where Robert is no longer willing to take English rule, and using William Wallace's memory, he says, You have bled for Wallace, now bleed for me. And he leads the Scotsman against the English to, you know, get his crown, to take his crown instead of being given his crown. Yes. 
And that's kind of where the movie ends. Yeah. Well, it's not kind of where the movie is. It is exactly. where the movie ends. Okay, so Hamish, at the very, very end, it's like one of the very last things that happens. He throws his sword. It's William's sword. It's William's sword. It's, it's got William's one. colors on it. It's got his tartan on it. Yeah. Um, I always thought that that, was, that throw was done by William. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's Hamish that does the big throw. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I always thought it was William. I said, I like that as the last image of the movie, the the sword stuck in the ground with the tartan yeah. flailing from it. Just the idea it, that his memory is so pervasive that it yeah. lives on even though he has died. And it calls back to, at the end of the very first battle, he did the same thing. He didn't throw his sword, but he jammed it in the ground. We got the same imagery of it, like, waving back and forth. Yeah. Um, it also brought the imagery back of Marin had their their wedding tie thing that was tied around their hands. She had it tucked underneath her dress and teasing, he pulled it out. And she's like, no, no, no. And she tucked it back in so that nobody would see it because their marriage was a secret. Um, so that that tie of the tartan, I think, called back to mm, Marin. That makes sense. Yeah. So whew, I'm going to skip... IMDb reviews and rating. There's something that I want to mention. It's totally out of context now, but there was never really a good... Is it a favorite or least favorite thing? Because that's the next section we're going to do. Um, no, it's just an observation. Okay, so okay. what's your observation? So, in um, in the war room, Longshanks, way back in the beginning of the movie, when he says, Scotland, my land, and then he goes on to talk about Scotland and how they're all barbarians and whatnot. Yeah. So you take that scene and then you jump to when the Irishman first turns up and he's, you know, being all crazy and stuff. And he calls Ireland my land and he is very crazy about it. I like the parallel where you've got Longshanks and you've got uh, Stephen both saying that these lands are my land and they're both crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they draw that parallel by making Stephen very obviously crazy. Mm. And you're like, yep, because Longshanks is crazy too. Okay, so favorite thing? So what was your favorite thing from Braveheart? Big, long movie. I know. I gotta say Princess Isabella was my favorite part. Mm. I really enjoyed watching her grow in power and overcome the impossible circumstances that she's been given, which she takes gracefully because she's a princess and that's what she's supposed to do. Mm Mm-hmm. Is be married off. Um, I, yeah, I really enjoyed her growing into her abilities throughout yeah. the movie. I'm going to be a stereotypical guy. I think my favorite part of this movie is probably the battles. Um, not so much Falkirk, more the first one, which was... The garrison or... Oh, Sterling. The Battle of Sterling Bridge. Yes. That whole scene that starts with the stirring speech and then they've got... The, the spears hidden in the grass, and then the way that the the cavalry comes around and takes out the archers, and it all ends with and the way they, they William Wallace. Them. They lift up their kilts. Yeah, that was really funny. <laughs> like it's a it's a great scene. Like it is probably the best scene in that movie as far as like the battles that they show, and in the whole run of cinema, that's probably one of the best battle scenes that have been you know, committed to celluloid. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And yeah, I said it before, but I felt like it, I felt like I remembered it seeing it later in the movie, but where it falls specifically isn't a huge detail. My favorite part, that whole scene, that whole battle, All for right. sure. 
Do you have a least favorite part of the movie? Um, the battles. <laughs> <laughs> I get bored at battles. Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, yes. So that's usually when I take the opportunity of like going to the bathroom and taking a break. It's like you keep watching the movie. I'm gonna go do this thing. When I come back, the exact same thing is gonna still be happening, and I'm squeamish. So like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the battles. Yeah. I think my least favorite part is how conniving and backstabbing the Scottish lords were. Ugh, yeah. Like, that was... Yeah, that was... Probably my absolute least favorite part of the movie was hearing them squabble and seeing them machinate behind the scenes. Just very frustrating. Yeah. You really get to see why Scotland was in the condition it was in. Yeah. It's because of these lords who are in the pocket of England who can't even agree on that. Mm -hmm. Like, they just can't agree on anything. Yeah, they have no sense of national pride. Right. Like, they don't have a sense of Scotland as an entity. They are just concerned with their castles. Yes. Yes, I that was very frustrating and yeah. Yeah. So, not my not my favorite part at all there. Yeah. So, in conclusion, final thoughts, recommendations. Braveheart for me is a classic movie. Like, I feel like the movies that win best picture at the Oscars, they're not always ones that are like timeless classic movies. I think Braveheart is one of those. If you if you have the three hours to invest in it, it's definitely worth a watch. I think it's a great example of Mel Gibson stepping behind the camera to craft an epic. And I wouldn't say it's the absolute best movie that has ever gotten a Best Picture Oscar, for sure. But I think for the sake of checking it off on a personal list of classic movies seen, Braveheart definitely should be on that list. Absolutely. It's one of those movies that, like, so that everybody has a shared social consciousness. Like, go out and see Braveheart. There's a reason it it got so many awards and accolades and everything like that. I would highly recommend it. Yes, I would absolutely recommend it as well. Uh, It's not necessarily an easy movie to watch. There's a lot of tension and a lot of fighting and, like you said, a lot of backstabbing. But there's also a lot of purpose behind those actions and there's a lot of righteous motivation Mm -hmm. that is very inspiring and i mentioned mel gibson stepping behind the camera but even when he's in front of the camera you can definitely tell that he's got so much more acting experience in when you start at mad max in 1976 1979 and then go to 1995 like he's just got so much more screen presence and experience yeah, and I think depth and range delivery he it's it's interesting comparing Max and William mm-hmm. Max a large part of his character is how difficult it is that he finds it is to express his feelings yeah William does not have that problem no he just scoops Marin up and then has a heart to heart about how he's loved her his whole life. And, and he's talking French to her. Yeah, and he's very romantic. Things. So he has absolutely, he's very open with his emotions. And Mel Gibson, as an actor, acts that beautifully. Oh, yeah. And he's able to go from that soft and romantic to that hard and militaristically inspiring. And yes, 
somewhere in the middle where he's, you know, that determined and, you know, I will not take the pain dulling drug because, you know, if I cry out, then they will know that they have broken me. It's, you know, yeah, it's amazing range for a character and just excellent performance by Mel Gibson. Yes. When he's pretty much at the top of his game, for sure. Yeah, I think so. And his, his directing in this... He produced a beautiful movie. I do wonder how short the movie, or how much shorter the movie would be if they replaced all of the slow-mo scenes with just regular (laughs) speed things. Yeah, I feel like that might Um, do something. Yeah, at least a couple of minutes. Yeah. (laughs) I did notice my very first thought um, on starting to watch the movie, it it opens up with these beautiful Scottish vistas. Yep. uh, With bagpipes playing. So many bagpipes in yeah, this movie. Yeah, of course. And, uh, How can there it, not be? <laughs> it occurred to me that this is the second movie that the landscape is part of the character of the movie. Mm-hmm. With Vanishing Point being in the the American West. And the landscape being so important to the movie. Again, here, the landscape is so important to the movie. Yeah, Scotland is really a character in this movie. Yes, absolutely. You know, this, this thing that needs to be created... And yep. nurtured and, you know, cultivated. Right. And it almost has a character arc just by itself. Mm-hmm. So I think we've gone on long enough about I, yeah, this movie. I think we have. So be sure to join us next week for another hiatus episode. We will be back next Wednesday. In the meantime, our website is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute. Like us on Facebook and join our listeners page, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next week.